everybody. We had a great episode today. We interviewed legend in the industry, Juan Ortiz, who is a public speaker. He's a trainer. He's got 25 years of building a portfolio in the business. Uh, I don't know, Patty. I thought it was great. I thought it was so awesome. And I've been wanting to get Juan on this podcast for a while. He's probably one of the most successful um, salespeople I know in this industry. And yeah. I think everybody's going to learn some really um, insightful, you know, get some insightful tips from him today. And then uh, your question from the field was equally insightful. I really liked that uh, a lot, James. It was, we were very much in the weeds on this one. So it was, yes. it's about marketing. So if you want to know how to go after a particular vertical by buying an email list, this is like really nitty gritty Facebook marketing and, and email list stuff of like just how to sell verticals. So right. that's what you're doing. You want to know that. That's what I talk about. And then Patty, tell us about the insiders. Uh, um, it's an update on surcharging. Um, New Jersey's just uh, signed into law a, a cap on surcharging. James and I discussed this a little bit. I think um, everybody, will, you know, if you're selling in New Jersey, you definitely want to yep. um, pay attention to this. Yeah, so this podcast is sponsored by Nativia Banking. Uh, we do interview Juan Ortiz. Juan Ortiz is not a current sponsor, advertiser, paid anything consultant with me. Um, and so this is just an awesome interview with a great person in the industry. So looking forward to that. With that being said, let's dive in. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Well, hey everybody, welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. James and I are here today with my old friend, Juan Ortiz. Um, you know, it's funny, Juan, I've known you for years, but I didn't really meet you until the year that you won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the uh, Midwest Acquirers. And I know yeah. you and I spoke there and I was really ho hoping to get you on the podcast then, but our schedules never meshed and then i ran into you again at this year's mwaa and i said i have to get you on the podcast not just because well, you're you. an awesome speaker but because you have you know some really in an incredible story to tell so but before we get to all of that uh maybe if you can give our folks for folks that don't know you a little bit of the backstory how you began in the payments industry i i love the story you've told about your very first job and how your wife helped you get that that would <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, you know, what has it been about 25 years or so? You know, you've had a pretty long and, and, and illustrious career. So please. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's really fun to be on a podcast in our industry. I, I do different podcasts as a motivational speaker. I've done it with therapists. I've done it with schools, stuff, different stuff. So it's nice to be on here. And, and again, James, congratulations on just what you've done and built it's it's a tremendous following it's really making an Thanks, impact man. in our industry but you know i i got started in 98 1998 october was my official first month in the business a few months before that my wife and i were talking about because i was doing motivational speaking and i was pretty good but the problem with speaking is your your own business you don't have insurance you are only as good as your last speech I didn't have a book back then. Now I have two. So, you know, I was hustling to get speeches. But again, you can have a, a month where you go without one, and then you can have a month with 10 speeches. And so we just decided we had five kids, and we just decided, you know what? We have got to get something more consistent. So I started looking for a job. Still going to speak, but I needed something flexible, you know, like a straight commission job, something like that. And back. Back then, we didn't have really the internet like we do today. So it was a thing called newspaper. For those of you that are younger than 50, <laughs> it was an invention back in the early 1900s. And they called it the one ad. And they, they're, you could buy a full page, a half page. But my wife found this ad about this big. It was like a postage stamp. It might have been a little bigger. I exaggerate. It said online credit card processing. Now, I'll be honest, there are people in the mid-90s, even close to 2000, that would have said, online, what does that mean? I was one of them, but my wife wasn't. She said, online, that's interesting. That's the future. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I go, Everything's going to be done online. I said, okay. She goes, I think you should check that out. She goes, the second part, I was like, well, what's credit card processing? She goes, I have no idea. I, have, I don't understand what that is. I, she goes, but it's online. Credit cards are big, but I don't know what the processing piece is. Of. Why? She goes, why don't you make an interview? And so I did, but to make a long story short, I had two or three other interviews before I went on this. I called the number, set up an appointment, 
And right before my appointment, it was a Friday, I'll never forget. I actually got two job offers and I was like, I'm off to the races. And they were pretty good job offers. They were like, you know, nice base salary, commission, sales. And I'm like, I'm done. I was not going to go to the interview. I was not. I thought, who gives a squat? I've got my, I've got my career. We'll move forward. But my wife again said, what do you have to lose? You've already booked it. I go, it's Friday afternoon. I've got my afternoon to lose. I <laughs> just go, I went to the interview and I'll never forget. Uh, the guy that set up the interview was actually out on an appointment installing a uh, piece of equipment. In those days, you did the prospecting, you sold it, you quoted it, you did the application and you installed it. Absolutely. And so, yeah. The guy that became my boss, my, my manager was out installing an account. And so I had to talk to his boss, sharp young woman, uh, maybe early, late 30s, uh, early 30s. And, um, you know, she interviewed me and, man, she just wouldn't leave me, let me leave her office. She explained what online processing was, gave me a spiel. And I told her, I already have a job. So thank you. It was nice talking. She go, And she did something really important. She goes, hey, let me ask you something. We're starting a training on Monday for a week. What do you have to lose by staying with us? You don't start your job till a couple of weeks from now. And believe it or not, that saved my career because I said, yeah. hmm. all right, she goes, I'll pay you per day. And at the end of the week, if you don't want to do it, you want to do it. And the rest is history. I never left. Wow. That's crazy. I love it. That, yeah. It's so yeah. interesting. I'm having flashbacks one from my own, uh, you know, career of, of getting into it because I, you know, I was, uh, you know, I got recruited by a company that was, you know, same type of deal. And in my mind, I was like, well, I'll work for them for a little while until I find a real job, <laughs> you know, and yep. here it's, here it's like 13 years later, I still haven't found a real job. You know what I mean? So uh, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. So yeah, I love it. I love it. So uh, obviously you have a long track record of success in, in merchant sales, building a portfolio, Give yeah. our audience some of the high level like tips. What what is you know what do you credit with your success? How have you been able to just build a book of business in this industry, which obviously is, has evolved and changed a lot during your career? What I was fortunate to get involved, and in, I didn't know at the time, there was an existing successful team at the head of this ISO, hmm. and it was a company called Data Transfers Associates. The CEO had been in it for a while. He had done it as an agent and was growing decided to start his own ISO, but he had put together a team of about five or six really good players, all in different positions, underwriting, uh, sales, marketing, and he had really put a great team together. I was just a sales rep, but what I was fortunate enough is I grew and I sold. I, I was at the point where I was doing 20 plus accounts a month. Mm -hmm. In fact, then you would know, James, it was like so many merchants still weren't even accepting credit oh, cards with yeah. mind-boggling yep. and the equipment the trans 330 and some of the stuff we we're like this is the best thing ever invented right today <laughs> yeah, right. i use it for you know doorstop but here's again <laughs> i didn't realize i was getting involved with a team of leadership that was really together and i think if i could give a high level uh, leadership. When when ISOs are starting, when agents are starting, really investigate who's at the top. Yeah. Who are the people you're working with? Obviously, if you're building an ISO and you're working directly with one of the big processors, first data or thesis, you're not going to get to know those. But what are some of the leaders that you're registered under? Because um, yeah. that team, I stayed with them my entire career until we sold. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that kind of segues into my question I had here, Juan, and that's like, I, I read your latest book, Always Learning, and yeah. um, I, I read in there, you said, quote, true success comes from building a community, a team of people around us who believe, challenge, and work with us. Uh, and then, like I said, that kind of goes to your answer to James' question, but I'd really like to know, I, I'm sure, and I know that you've built a community around you. Uh, how did that happen? Was it organic? Was it something that you needed to go out and, and really start pounding the pavement in terms of going to trade shows and et cetera, et cetera? And of course, I guess it uh, you also had your uh, community from your um, from your speaking. You know, you had a lot of support from that as well, right? Well, I, I think you would all agree with this. 
you got to play as a team, right? There's no I in team. We've heard it since we were little kids, right? Right. There's no I in team. You have to be on a team and you have to be humble about it. I, I kind of always been fortunate to just land on good teams. <laughs> you know, you know how sometimes you're around really smart people like James and you're like, okay, I feel pretty dumb. Just the guy talks and everybody else is like, <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about. But I realize it's a compliment to me if I can work with James because he's a smart individual and then it gives me credibility. But there are probably things I'm better than he is. Right. And what happens is when you're on a team, you're then surrounded by people that actually cover your weaknesses and it makes for a great thing. Look, in high school, we won the state championship football. I mean, incredible. My senior year in high school. Awesome. Now, I would love to tell you that I was the key star player, but I really wasn't. <laughs> but I was kind of the rah-rah guy. I was the guy that jumped in the middle, got the whole team cheering. And then I didn't really play much, but we won state. Nobody remembers right. that I didn't play. They just remember I was on the state championship. When I got involved in this industry, I jumped on this team and I was blown away by how smart these people were how well they knew the product, how well they understood the industry. See, what your podcast is doing for a lot of people, it's educating them on stuff that they don't take the time to read. Mm -hmm. They don't know the Durban Act. They don't know a lot of the stuff. And they just kind of think, oh, I don't need it. I'll just work and sell and I'm going to be huge. Well, guess what? You got to know what you're doing. Here's the last thing I will tell you about building a community. You really need a visionary you got to have someone to the top, you know, like later on, we're listening to, you know, your podcast on uh, Nativia, the webinar. And I'm excited about that because there's a leader there. that's a visionary that right. understands what the future is. We had that. Our CEO, John Ranty, was a guy that made a difference. And I'll be honest with you, I own everything because he saw the potential in me before I saw it in myself. And by the way, when you build a team, there's going to be some backbiting. There's going to be some fighting. I'm like, why is he the vice president of the sale? That guy's not very smart. There's other people like technology. Who did we look at his resume? <laughs> We're going to fight behind each other's back because we judge each other. We compare ourselves. But a true leader knows how to get rid of that. Bring us together. And let me tell you, if you can get a leader that understands people and leadership and brings strengths and weaknesses together, put us in any industry, any single industry will tear it up. Yeah, you know, yeah. I have to I have to interject one thing, Patty, because I thought it was so sure. interesting here. Uh, I just got this book, by the way, like a couple of days ago. So I started reading it. So it's so interesting, Juan. So in our our company, CC Sales Pro, um, you just hit on two of our core values. One of them is called always learning. And so I thought that's so interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, the importance of that. And the other one that we have is always inspiring. And that's this idea of everybody in the company is positive and we have a zero drama policy. Mm -hmm. That is so crucial, right? If you're trying oh, to build yeah. a big team, you, you know, I mean, at the time of this recording, literally yesterday at about 430, I got an email from one of my top people about an issue that he was having with somebody else on our team. So called my wife. Hey, Christina, I'm going to be here late from 4.30 to 6.30 or 7. I went back and looked at emails. I went back and looked at communication. I went back and looked at the claims that were made and everything so that I was ready today to bring these people together so we can have a conversation and sort this out. Because, right, I mean, Juan, as soon as you get the drama in there, yeah. oh boy, you're in, and you've got to jump in and you got to take care of it. Otherwise, it's going to eat your organization alive. Oh, and I will so tell true. you this, James. Our CEO, over my 17 years with him, because I've been in 26, this November or October will be 26 years, but in my 17 years with our CEO, I was shocked to see him let go of some high-level executives. Right. Because yeah. at some point, if you aren't willing to be a part of the team, if you continue to bicker and slander people and talk behind their back, someone's got to make a tough call and say, you know, I've, I've done everything to help you be a part of this team, but you don't help us with that. Right. And I watched him let go of some people. And it was hard because yeah. those guys were my friends. Yeah. I was shocked. But that's good leadership when you do the hard things. Yeah. Right. Right. That's true. That's true. 
So tell me, Juan, uh, again, another thing, learning lesson I took from the book is uh, you say, uh, in life, we have limited resources, but we should take advantage of what we do have to better ourselves and improve our situation. I'd love it if you'd relate a personal story to that effect for us. Um, well, I'm you sure know, you have plenty of them. So this is a shameless plug, but there's my book. Um, <laughs> my first book is called Never Forsaken. It's my life story. And when I became a speaker, I joined a bureau. I went to a speaking school and I got out and it was so much fun doing speaking. High schools, colleges, corporate. I'm still doing that today. But one of the things the Bureau said to me is, you're going to need a book sometime. And I'm like, man, I barely graduated from high school. I cheated all through college. How am I? <laughs> They're like, listen, you can hire some. So I actually hired a ghostwriter to help me write my first book. But I, I can't tell you how hard, how hard it was to tell my story to someone else. It was painful. Now, if you haven't read my first book, it's called Never Forsaken. And I just grew up in a family of, uh, you know, a lot of domestic abuse. My dad was a drug dealer. My dad was an immigrant from Mexico. Him and my mom married at 16 and 17. And he really, he was a dreamer. He really believed being in the United States could give him everything he wanted. He was a legal resident here because of his family. And, but you know what? When he couldn't succeed the traditional way, he turned to illegal stuff, drugs and violence. And of course, he was always uh, on su some kind of substance. And that just kind of drove him crazy. And, you know, he was very physically, emotionally abusive. And uh, I lived with that man for 18 years. And let me just tell you, as a, the oldest of six, it wears you down. Huh. At the time, you feel like, I just will never be anything. I literally remember thinking, I hope to live past 18. I know I'll never go to college. I know I'll never be married. I'll never have kids. Because I just, I'm not going to escape this situation. And so when you talk about resources, as a kid, I was fortunate because I found some great mentors. First of all, my football coach in high school, incredible. Now, he was a military guy. Back in the 70s, they had the flat top, the military flat top. Everybody had to shave their head. He would get in your face. and you know, We never got a water break back then. But you know what? I needed a man outside of my house to love me that way. He was never easy on me. In my church, I found a guy that just was brilliant, smart. He's the one that said, you are smart one. You can get a degree. He helped me do my financial aid and fill out an application. And I went to college and I graduated. I mean, I, I got a college degree because those resources were mentors in my life. And I will tell you, you then have to look for those throughout life. And that's been my success in business that I've always looked to help from others. And, and I'll make this statement. No one succeeds by themselves. No one. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Juan, I know that you work with uh, Mark Dunn over at uh, Field Guide Enterprises, among other things yeah. that you're doing. You know, coaching and consulting. I, You know, ISO owners, Payfax, fit, uh, FinTechs, et cetera. I'm wondering if you could share with us, because we speak a lot about Payfax and fintechs on this on this podcast. I'm wondering what you can what you might think of in terms of some of the most common misconceptions about merchant acquiring that you've come across working with Payfax and fintechs. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, and James, I'd love to have a dialogue with you sometime, but. Uh, you know, I've heard you say over the last few podcasts how that 1099, that independent agent is really struggling out there. Yes. Almost to the point where you're like, these guys could go extinct. Right. And and I will tell you the unregistered agent ISO that's out there trying to make it, if they're not looking at technology, if new things out there, they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle. Yeah. Yesterday, I was on an hour call with a, a, a pretty good size ISO. These two guys have built a nice business, and now they're asking us, should we register? And I said, look, if you're looking to build a brand, if you're looking to exit someday, then yeah, you do. And, and here's the deal, and James, you would say this too, unless these 1099s figure out how to do things differently and start educating themselves and start looking at 
what's out there, I just don't see them around very long. And I've heard you talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I think what's interesting is it's like I don't think that all these 1099s are going to go extinct per se. What what I think where I think we would agree this on this is I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of them. They're going to go away. The ones that are left are going to become business owners, right? Like you can't you can't service your market with complex technology all by yourself. You said it a little bit. Nobody succeeds by themselves. Well. In our industry, you've kind of been able to do that a little bit, as long as you have an upstream partner that has the tech and all that. But I feel like what we're going to see now is the ones who are really successful, they're going to hire that assistant. They're going to hire that customer service person. They're going to they're going to contract with a local IT company, and they're going to specialize in a few verticals, and they're going to bring them really great technology. But I think the idea of this, like, yeah, this standalone 1099 agent um, that's supposed to know how to sell everybody everything. I think that's going to be really tricky. I think those people are going to have to partner with technology companies that are going to bring a lot more value, right? And I think that's their, it, I love it because it, it really dovetails with everything you just said, right? It's all about, you have to have the right team. And I think that the 1099s haven't been as focused on that because it was so simple to sell terminals and all that. And I think now they have to reshift their focus, right? Well, you the other day interviewed um, Taylor. Yeah. From mm -hmm. Cold. And what a great interview. I, I recommend if anyone's listening to this, you should go back and listen to that podcast. Fantastic. Your dialogue, your discussion there was right on. But look at that, what, what those guys have done in a very short time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very specific to their technology, very controlled. And, and to your point, Patty, uh, what about a pay factor? What, what about my own technology? I, I'm just saying this, in my opinion, from 26 years if you're a registered retail ISO or wholesale ISO and and you don't really own technology, it's something you should seriously consider. Because right. once, once you lose control, look, I'm not against having multiple gateways and, and being able to send it, but there's something about when you own something and it's integrated. Yeah, That's the first thing. The second thing I will tell you, it is really tough to grow your ISO with just organic growth nowadays. It's very tough. I mean, you can build a W2 team, you can build a 1099 team, you can build both of them. But organic growth is tough. We live in a very competitive red ocean environment. I mean, it's just cutthroat out there. And I think that you're going to have to look at organic growth and acquisitions. To me, if you want to grow in this industry, you've got to have a little of both. But technology plays a big role, big role. This this uh, company that I'm currently working with, uh, Propeller and Angelo Greco is a, a dear friend of mine, and they just landed this gigantic account. It, it's one of those accounts you dream about and a sales rep, and it, it went all through their Slack and just like, awesome, we did it. But let me tell you why it was big. It was integrated. It was technology. It was complicated. Those big accounts don't move because, man, Juan, you are a good-looking guy. <laughs> they're, they're not interested in how good or funny I am. They're interested in, can you make this work, and is it secure, and will it be up 99.9% .9 of the time? Right. And so technology is crucial. Yeah. You're going to have a payback situation. You better know how it works. You better know how to sell it and when to sell it. And so that is what I would tell you, Patty, I think is where it's missing out there for a lot of ISOs. They're just trying to get more accounts and it does work. James, you just said it. It does work. You can accumulate a portfolio, but long-term, you've got to really have your own technology. You've got to be able to do some things like acquisitions that'll bring you. And that's what Mark and I at Field Guide are really advising a lot of these yeah. ISOs. Well, I think too, yeah. it's an interesting one, how those two really fuel each other, right? Because, you know, the one of the reasons it's so hard to build organically right now is because a lot of the ISOs that are trying to build organically have nothing to offer. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. And so then all of a sudden you go do this acquisition and let's say you acquire a technology company that goes after home service providers, right? Well, now you just gave your sales team jet fuel. Now you say, all right, we're going to take the next three months. We're only going to go after home service companies and we're going to broaden our territory a bit. And we've got this specialized solution. We're going to make a special trifold brochure for you. We're going to make a video, you know, all of a sudden now 
you're bringing something to your sales team that they're excited about, that they're passionate about. They can go sell it, right? And so um, I think it's interesting how those, and, and in the same way though, it's like, you know, if you go acquire technology, but you don't know how to sell it, you have a problem. So right. I, I think the I think the two, right? It, it seems to me why yeah, like, they go together. Spend, what did you spend your money on? You right. know what I'm saying? Right. You got to bring, and that's what technology companies are struggling with. You know, it's one thing I think is so interesting about this conversation, Juan, and, and I'm sure we could talk for another hour, but what's interesting to me is when you talk to most of the ISVs out there, I think our industry has this perception like, well, there's these stale old legacy ISOs that really struggle. And then there's these hot fintechs and tech companies, and they're just taking off like a rocket ship. No. When you talk to the ISVs, guess what? They have a huge struggle. Why? Because they understand technology, but they don't understand payments and they don't understand distribution. Right. So right. it's not about one versus the other. It's not like I think the tech world is going to win and the ISOs are going to lose. I think the companies are going to win that bring the two together. Excellent. Right. Well said. You, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, I remember when the owner of our company said, "Juan, let's let's uh, let's start looking at some." We built our own gateway from 2002. The Blue Pay gateway was now. Hmm. I didn't do anything back mm -hmm. then, but eventually we added recurring billing and APIs. Right. By the time we were done, we were winning awards with our Blue Pay gateway. But I will tell you, I'll never forget. It was like 2007 or 2008. One of my ISOs in California said, hey, I got this software company and they were wondering if they could work with us on credit cards. I'm like, what are you talking about? They want to put it right in their app and, and can we do that? And that was my first, first ISB. That's great. And now, let me just tell you, that first, I was very fortunate. That first one ended up doing 100 new accounts a month. Wow. And then the CEO said in 2008, we're building an entire ISB department. Right. And the rest is history. We yeah. we put in over a thousand pounds. Let me let me tell you this. People have asked me, one is a consultant. Everybody's doing ISVs. It's saturated. It's not like no way. No. Not even close. No. There's so much opportunity for ISVs. Yeah. But like you just said, James, you gotta know what you're doing. Yes. You gotta know how it works. Yeah, you gotta you, if you bring distribution to an ISB. All of a sudden, the the opportunity to do an acquisition is is very different. Both from outside capital perspective, they look at it and say, "Oh, look at this synergy." You know how to sell; they know how to do technology. We should bring these That's two right. together, right? So, okay. So one, I want to do one last really quick question here, and then I and I definitely want to give you a chance to talk more about kind of what you do and how people can reach out. But let's talk about sales management for just one second. So, for those out there that are managing the sales team today. I know you spend a lot of time working on this and Mark Dunn as well. You know, when you're managing the sales team in this complex payments uh, ecosystem, any advice for that sales manager, what can they do to build that sales team and to be successful in, in, in what they're dealing with today? Yeah. And, you know, I think the typical thing um, for a lot of uh, sales managers is, come on, let's get our numbers down. Absolutely. You have to have numbers. Right. You have to have goals. We have to have a way to measure it. Actually, in my book, there's a chapter there that says, inspect what you expect to earn respect. And that was my CEO who taught me. I We made an acquisition downtown Chicago, and he said, Juan, I want you to run this company. And I was having so many problems because it was so messed up. I had never had a direct sales work. And he was the one who said, Juan, you have to inspect what you told them you're expecting. And when you do that, they'll respect you. Mm -hmm. And so here are three things I would tell you. One, every salesperson has an authentic want. And so my, my question is, what is that? As sales managers, we need to figure out what is it that this person wants? Yeah. Why is this man or woman selling for us? And I think managers just go to too quick of training and just move on. Right. Here's the second thing. Uncover the truth. What do I mean from that? Well, what prevents you right now from really being the top rep in our company? You know, what are you not talking about that needs to surface? There are a lot of people that just are trying to sell, but they're hanging on to past experiences or things that just don't allow them to sell. So what is the truth about your goal? And here's the third thing, uncovering the right action. Holy smokes, how many times do you send someone out excited after goals and they come back empty handed? And you're like, I don't know what's wrong. 
Well, the problem is you're not doing the right things. You're not, a, like, for example, people ask me, Juan, what's the most important, and, and by the way, you guys, you know that through my speaking, I don't only do credit card. I do teaching in the mortgage industry and a bunch of other stuff. But here's the number one thing in sales, prospecting. You can never stop prospecting. Yep. Look, I'll be 62 this year. I'm a consultant and I'm still prospecting. I walk into a restaurant, I want to meet the manager. I want to meet the owner. I don't necessarily going to sell the account, but how great is it for my sales team to go, hey, by the way, here's the name and number of the guy I just had dinner at last night. Go get that account. Right. Never, ever stop prospecting. And I'm going to tell managers, you want your group, your team to grow. The speed of the leader is the speed of the team. Right. Great stuff. Great stuff. So one, uh, here's what I would love for, for those who are in our audience. So we've got, you know, ISO owners and executives, we've got agents on here. Um, where would you send them to learn more about you? And maybe even if you want to include in there a little, uh, you know, insight on kind of what does it mean to work with Juan Ortiz? What kind of people are you looking to partner with these days and then share how they can reach out to you to learn more? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, working with Mark Dunn and the field guide, and, and you can find us out there. We're obviously in the green sheet. We're in just different places. We're at every regional event in the ETA. Um, but Mark Dunn is very accessible. He's actually the primary owner and, and, and I'm his partner. But I would reach out, just look us up online, the field guide, instead of giving you my email and phone number. And here's what I would tell you. If you're having growth, but it's not the growth level that you want, we're the people to talk to. Mm -hmm. If you want an exit strategy, and this is what I'm telling you, there are many registered retail or wholesale ISOs, not as many wholesales, but a lot of retail ISOs, they're like, we don't know what the next step. If you're looking yeah. for an exit strategy, that is our expertise, including we'll help you broker the deal, whether it's a merger, whether it's an acquisition, Come to the field guide. We work with attorneys. We work with the back ends. We know portfolios. We've been doing it. Mark personally, you guys have been in 34 years. Mark Dunn has worked with over 250 ISOs. Wow. I mean, think about that career. That's unbelievable. So if you're out there going, man, we're growing, but not like the way we want. We're not growing. We need to change something. Or you're like, we're registered, but we, we're wondering if we should go to the next step. We're your guys. Love it. That's fantastic. So definitely check out the field guide. You look up Mark Dunn, look up Juan Ortiz, uh, both, by the way, very easy to find on LinkedIn and things of that nature as well. So um, Juan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Patty, thanks so much for setting it up. I definitely really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Juan, it was thanks even so better much, than guys. I expected. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. So, Patty, hope everybody really enjoyed the event uh, that would have already taken place at the time that this is going on with Nativia, right. where we talked about Nativia banking. Uh, Juan even referenced it in the rep because while we're recording it, that, that event's happening in a few hours. Um, but I want to share a link. I shared it previously where it went to the registration, but we've switched this link up, ccsalespro.com slash Nativia. It's now going to a page where you can create your own Nativia bank account for free. Okay. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So let me explain this though, because there's a couple of really big advantages. So for those of you that maybe are new to this concept, you have neo banking, the idea of making residual from merchant spend, not just from merchant acquiring. So right now, when you think about residual, you think about interchange as the enemy of residual, right? Right. right. Interchange is a cost. Well, guess what? Interchange is also revenue for the bank. Mm -hmm. So maybe you should become the bank. Yes. That's when the TVA banking does. It allows you to earn residual off of the spend. So when they use the card, it generates residual. Now, here's the cool thing, though. Honestly, it is a little bit complicated. It's a very new thing for many of you. It's this it brand is. new concept. Right. So here's my recommendation, okay? Don't worry about that yet. Here's what you need to do today. Open a Nativia bank account yourself to understand how it works. And two things are going to happen for you. Number one, you're going to get uh, benefits and rewards, cash back rewards on debit spend, all of that stuff. You know, all the all the benefits of expense management, virtual card creation, all the stuff we've talked about it with neo banking. You get to experience that firsthand for yourself. But here's what's really cool. And I can't give too much information on this because it's still coming, but you're going to gain access to low cost capital as well. Yes. So uh, Vlad, not surprisingly, is always trying to upend every, every market he uh, enters with Nativia. 
he is really trying to up in the market in terms of how agents leverage their residuals and how ISOs leverage their residuals to get capital for growth. And because he's on this whole banking thing, he's able to provide really, really favorable terms and rates for this. So mm -hmm. the idea he has is that if you're an ISO or an agent, he wants you to open a bank account, use that bank account for your residual deposits that come in and then spend with the cards and all your, like you would do with your normal bank. Right. But by doing that, he now has access to that information of, hey, here's your residual, you know, total residual deposit. He's able to then say, hey, well, if that's your residual deposit, maybe we can advance you X amount. So he's working on uh, low cost capital. So, um, but even if uh -huh. he wasn't, you need to understand neo banking, and the best way to do that is to use it. So go to ccsales.com slash Nativia um, and check it out. N-E-T-E-V-I-A, Nativia. So ccsalesprocom slash Nativia. Open a free Nativia bank account and check it out. And just as a uh, quick uh, postscript, James, I would believe that the webinar that you're putting on uh, will be available online. Absolutely. Go to youtube.com slash ccsalespro. And whenever you're listening to this, um, it'll be up there near the top or just search for Nativia and ccsalespro in the YouTube search and bar and it'll getting... pop up. Yeah. So thanks, Patty, for that. Appreciate it. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you are an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, today, questions from the field. I want to talk about what to do with an email list. All right. Oh, that's a good one. So this is yeah. going to be very specific uh, today. Now, this is actually the answer to a very specific question that I had yesterday from uh, an ISO owner who's looking to go after a specific um, vertical. Mm -hmm. And he has been able to acquire a list with thousands of email addresses on it. Okay. So. A new list? Uh, yeah, well, it's it's a list. I don't know. You know, we'll find out, right? Um, that's part. That's why I'm talking about it. So, what do you do with an email list? It used to be really simple, right? You email them. Right. That's what you do with an email list, right? Not anymore. No. Okay. So, in case you were wondering, sending a spam email message is not a great strategy for you, um, and it can actually do a lot of damage to your uh, brand reputation and, and things of that nature. And so, I want to kind of overlap this a little bit with one other uh, strategy, which is content marketing. Okay. So. When we talk about content marketing, what we're essentially talking about is an education approach to marketing. So rather than making a direct appeal and saying, hey, sign up for our service, you're saying, hey, here's a free ebook or here's a podcast episode or here's a blog article or some type of content. Here's a link to our YouTube channel where we educate or our Instagram, whatever it is, right? So that's content marketing. So if you didn't know what that is, um, there's a great book. I actually just had one of my top people read it because I, it's so good called Inbound Marketing. It was actually written by the founders of HubSpot almost, I think it was like a decade ago that they wrote this book. Um, but it's so relevant to give you this foundational understanding. So I would highly recommend that book. But we have content marketing. Well, how does this layer over to an email list? All right. If you get a big email list, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do with it right now. Step number one create or purchase a new domain, a new domain that you're going to send the initial emails from. So as an example, my own company, ccstorage.com, we recently acquired a huge uh, email list. We actually bought a couple of them. The first thing we did is we went out and got, I think it's, I think we got ccstorageemail.com or ccstoragemarketing.com or something like that. And we have that domain. Now, why do we do that? Because what you may not realize is if you get more than about one out of a thousand emails marked as spam, then the email service providers like Gmail and Yahoo and mm -hmm. Outlook, they start to blacklist your domain. Right. So now all of a sudden, if we lost that and it's like all of a sudden ccstorage.com is listed as a spammer. Well, then when, when the CEO of my company, you know, Ben at ccsalespro.com, when he sends an email out, it's going to go to your spam folder. Right. 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 And you're not going to see it. So you don't want to do that. So what we do is we take this initial list and we get a different uh, URL, you know, again, ccstoragemarketing.com or something like that. We create a separate email marketing account. Usually we use MailChimp for this. And we then send a series of usually three to four emails that have no sales pitch at all, 
purely content marketing. So in this case, we do a weekly podcast. We also have an ebook. So we did a drip campaign of our three most popular podcast episodes and an e-free ebook download. And we went the, the, the three podcast episodes first, then the free ebook download. Okay. Here's what we did next. We then take that list. Now, hopefully we are still able to send all four, depending on the quality of the list. MailChimp might shut your account down after the first one because you might have had a lot of people market as spam. But if you can provide great content and a good subject line and all that, work with Patty Murphy. What's your, what is it? It's scribes. Uh, well, go to proscribes.net. Proscribes.net. Yes. And, have Patty write this stuff for you. Right. There'll be a, there'll be a, uh, a click for more information to contact Patty kind of thing. There you go. So have Patty work with you on this, but you want to create a fantastic, you know, a uh, series of emails and, and things like that, that are going to go out and just free content. Then take a report and take all the people that opened the email, but did not market as spam uh -huh. after four emails, right? Import all those people into your core list that you right. send from your regular domain and continue. Right. Nice. So the idea here is when you're going after a specific vertical, if you want to see big time growth, first of all, you got to come up with a good content marketing strategy, right? How are you going to educate the market on what you're doing and have mm -hmm. a consistent weekly content marketing strategy? And then you just got to add more people to that right, right. now. Right. There's one other way you can use this email list though. In addition to that, go into Facebook and create what's called a Facebook custom audience. Mm -hmm. And you can upload this entire email list. Now, depending on how relevant the email list is, how, how recent it is, you can look at probably 30 to 50% of those emails. Um, Facebook is going to find those people on Facebook. So but, uh, just a real quick question. They're going to find them as um, individuals or as businesses? Individuals. You know, okay. 100%. All Facebook marketing is to individuals, right? Okay. So they're going to find it. So like we have a list, uh, we just bought a list that's a total of about 9,000 emails. Okay. And so our Facebook audience, I think ended up being around 3,000, right? So okay. so now what we do is we take our content strategy, in this case, our podcast, right? right. And we just are implementing it today. Hopefully in a, in a week or two, it'll be live where every week when we publish our podcast, we're going to boost it to those nine, to those 3,000 people that we found on Facebook from that list that are self-storage property owners. Right. 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 Um, and, and we use that. Then we can also on Facebook. That's also where we can do the hard sell because they can't mark us as spam. That's where we can do the hard sell of schedule a demo, schedule a demo, schedule a demo. Every time they log in, they're going to see schedule a demo. Right. Right. Um, right. And we're, what we're also promoting our content. So those are just a couple of quick tips for you to understand when you get that email list, what to do with it. The number one thing is make sure you have a good content strategy. If you don't have a good content marketing strategy in this day and age, you're pretty much dead in the water as far as doing any kind of online marketing because, mm -hmm. you know, it, like, like Juan was saying on a podcast today, I mean, you need to stand out. If you want to stand out, you got to do something other people are not willing to do. Um, right. In our case, we're really blessed to have a studio and all this equipment. So we started a podcast for self-storage property owners, you know, but you can, you know, again, hire somebody like Patty, write blog articles, you know, even a weekly blog post about your specific vertical. That's great. You're going to send that out every week with a great subject line. That's going to draw people to the website. And I'll give right. you one final tip and then I'll be done for today on the marketing stuff. Make sure that if you're going to do the Facebook marketing, that you also install something called a Facebook pixel. Now you can look this up on, on YouTube and learn all about it, but you can get a Facebook pixel as a little snippet of code that you can install on your website. So now everybody who visits your website and looks at that blog post, even though Facebook might not have found that person when you uploaded the email, if they're on the same computer that they use for Facebook, when they read your blog post, uh -huh. you can add that to your custom audience and say, find all the people on this email list, but also everybody that visited my website in the last 90 days. That's very cool. And so now you can build it up. So I wanted to give just some really like nitty gritty detail, practical uh -huh. stuff today on the marketing side, because as many of you are shifting and I'm, I'm, you know, it's interesting talking to Juan about it today, but I mean, I'm actually really encouraged Patty at so many um, ISOs and agents I'm talking to who are making this transition yes. to vertical specific, right? Mm -hmm. I'm and, seeing a lot as well. Yes. And what I just gave you today is like marketing 101 of like, for those of you making the transition to online marketing, what I just told you is like, that's like the easiest, I can tell you a right. lot of other stuff, First but that's step. the core. Right. Buy email lists, leverage them to promote your content marketing. Yes. There you go. There's your tip for the day. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com.
also, James, there's a new surcharging law in New Jersey. Yes, I saw this. <clears throat> took take took effect immediately as of I believe it was like late July, early August. Mm -hmm. Um and it states that it's okay to charge customers additionally if they're paying by credit card. It's just not okay to profit from those charges. Right. Um, they also have to post clear signage at the checkout um, mm -hmm. explaining it. The new law uh, closely mirrors language that was included in a Colorado law. You'll remember back in 2021. Yes. That was a year that Colorado joined the majority of states now expressly allowing surcharging. Um, but it said uh, that the maximum surcharge a merchant can assess is 2% or the merchant discount fee. Right. Now, I reached out to our friend Jonathan Rossi, the expert on surcharging, uh -huh. compliance surcharging, um, just to you know, query him about this law. Um, and he you know, noted, of course, that the New Jersey law closely mirrors the car brand rules for surcharging right um you know namely you can't do it to boost profits it also de uh, defines a surcharge as quote any additional amount imposed by a seller at the time of a credit card transaction that increases a charge to a consumer for the use of a credit card right now jonathan of course worked with he as not surprisingly he worked with the new jersey lawmakers on this and he told me that he expects other states to start following this prescriptive uh, process yes. that Colorado and New Jersey have taken. Uh, he see, he suggested that lawmakers see this as a compromise between the uh, demands of two diverse constituencies, consumers and small businesses. Uh -huh. By setting a clear set of standards, he said, the states are taking steps to ensure consumers know up front about surcharges and that the fees are not exorbitant. You know, while the benefits to merchants are clear, Jonathan noted, the consumer experience to date with surcharging and other forms of differential pricing um, have varied a lot um, from merchant to merchant. Yeah. Uh, there's a New York Times article recently that found merchants applying, quote, cash discounts or convenience fees of 3.8%, uh, 4%, even 5%. Right. I have to admit, I had a friend tell me they were pretty upset because uh, there was a, a surcharge of 6%, which is really ludicrous. Right. Um, you know, of course, as we discussed in previous podcasts, Visa recently lowered from 3% to 4% the permissible cap on surcharges that are applied to its branded cards. Uh, MasterCard has kept its at 4%, however. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. And, and um, obviously Jonathan Rossi had a hand in, in a lot of this stuff as, as per usual. Um, he, by the way, he has a great article. If you get look him up on LinkedIn right now, yes. um, uh, Jonathan Rossi, R-A-Z-I, he has a really good article. He, he reposted it. Um, yeah. I, I, to be honest with you, this, this law, in my opinion, Patty was a bit superfluous. Um, I, oh, in my opinion, yeah. mm -hmm. I, when I read it, it I was, was except of, that it made them, gave them, you know, the ability to say we did something. Well, exactly. It was good politically. I'm sure it was great, politically, but it's, yeah. yeah. But I, my issue with it was, so number one, it was, you can't profit. Well, that's a, there's a lack of understanding there of how this all works. I mean, mm -hmm. the payment process, they didn't say the payment processor can't profit. Well, the payment processor is the one that sets the discount rate. So as a result, they really didn't do anything there because of course the merchant isn't going to profit because the payment processor is going to take all the money. Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I just, again, I feel like the law just didn't really do anything. It, it, did explain, it showed how they didn't really know how, how everything worked. Right, right. And yeah. so, I, but the only thing that really stood out to me about the whole thing, which again, I'm sure Jonathan Rossi had a, a hand in, is the language you just read as far as how they described it. Yes. You know, that was interesting because it was probably one of the clearest I've seen. Obviously, the other one in Colorado, uh, notwithstanding, but one of the clearest I've seen as far as against mm -hmm. the non-cash adjustment concept. Yes. Um, so, you know, if you have merchants doing a non-cash adjustment in New Jersey, it is now illegal. I mean, right. in my opinion, I'm not an attorney. It's not legal advice, but I mean, me it reading that, like I think it. it's, I think it's pretty clear. And, and that's a big deal because it wasn't before it was, it, it wasn't illegal. It was just non-compliant with visa rules. Right. But visa rules is very different than, you know, the government visa doesn't make laws. They have rules. Um, and so now non-cash adjustment in, um, in New Jersey is illegal. I'm sure there's many that would argue that, um, 
many of the ways dual pricing is done would also be illegal because if the pricing on the shelf doesn't reflect the two prices, mm -hmm. you could you could argue that. I mean, I I, I think there's a good argument to be to be made in the other direction, but um, but yeah, that, I think that that to me was the most interesting part of it. Yeah, and it was also interesting to me when I was you know exchanging emailing with uh, Jonathan, just this idea of how they have to describe the charge. Mm, yeah. You know, it's um, it just it sounds it to me seems a little bit convoluted, right? Um, you know that it's like at the checkout counter, you have to be able to delineate between the cash and the card price, right? Well, that's kind of hard to do on each individual item, right? Well, and and ultimately, ultimately, the language was designed to make compliant surcharging the only viable option yeah um yeah, and exactly. and and so visa i think define compliant surcharge. yeah right the visa yeah. defined compliance surcharge right so I, I think that's the important thing what but to me at the same time i mean i still believe that the um you know as you know i mean i still believe uh, many of these programs are protected under federal law as far as the the durban amendment and all that but i think states rights do come into this in a really big way oh yeah and so we have to be aware of, of what's going on there so yeah i think if you're in if you're in the state of new jersey and you know you have merchants there um, I think you should read this law. It's not going to take yeah. very much time. Um, take a look at the language. Think about how you're going to respond to the inevitable complaint that comes through from a customer that goes to the state attorney general's office. I mean, I I just wrote one up uh, yesterday for one of my clients, not for New Jersey, but a different state where mm -hmm. um, I think it was New York, actually. They had a um, complaint. And, you know, how do we respond to this? And, and it's weird because some of the, you know, the, the state attorney general, they generally send a, a notice to the merchants, right. not to the processor. And so the, the merchants reaching out to the processor saying, how do we respond? And so just be ready, uh, be yeah. ready for this stuff and understand it's gonna what's going to happen. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So thank you for the update on this, Patty. Really interesting stuff. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.